Did you know that uh, both Charles Dickens and Mark Twain believed the parable of the prodigal son to be the best short piece of literature in existence? It's true. And from the perspective of mere literary criticism, of all Jesus' parables, by virtually unanimous scholarly consent, the prodigal son is considered to be Jesus' best parable, his literary masterpiece, if you will. However, Christians shouldn't speak of Jesus' parables in those sorts of terms. It's inappropriate, it's, it's irreverent, and, and dangerous, even, frankly, uh, because Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. He's the God of all creation, not just some storyteller. And Jesus' parables, as we possess them in the Bible, are holy scripture. They are God's authoritative, divine revelation to fallen humanity. What did we just confess a few minutes ago? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. People don't say that after they read a passage of David Copperfield. But this parable has served as the muse, the inspiration for many famous artists, uh, painters such as Rembrandt and the composer Debussy. And and it's easy to see why. Uh, It packs an emotional punch. On a certain level, it offers its readers a very realistic and touching portrait of family life, of of a child's rebellion and a father's unconditional love. But in the church, within the community of faith, This parable is also probably the unanimous favorite. If I were to ask, which is your favorite parable of all of Jesus' parables? Most of us, I wouldn't be surprised if we said it's the parable of the prodigal son. Not on account of its literary form or pacing or character development, but due to the message, the teaching, the theology behind the story. This parable is a treasure trove of insight into God's love. For lost sinners and the hope of divine forgiveness in the face of human rebellion. Which is the truth we're gladly celebrating today in the baptism of our dear sister Angela Nurlander. Those are precisely the same things, by God's grace, Angela believes about herself, which she will later publicly confess. About God's love for her, a lost sinner, and Angela's hope of divine forgiveness in the face of her rebellion through faith in Christ alone. Following Craig Blomberg's proposal, which I think makes a lot of sense, each point Jesus makes in a parable relates to a character in the story. So here we have three characters, the father and his two sons, which means this parable makes three points, one for each. However, These characters don't just represent themselves. They represent people outside the text. The two sons represent us. All of us, every person here, sinners in need of humble repentance. Sinners who should be glad and not mad that God's grace extends to even the worst offenders. And the father in the story... He represents God. And the character of the Father shows us the love, patience, and forgiveness of God. Now, the first character in our story is the prodigal son himself. And and prodigal, by the way, just means somebody who wastes money extravagantly. 
the prodigal is the first character, and the point that Jesus makes with this man is this. You can see this in your bulletins. Point number one, even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. Friend, you may not know this, uh, but that, that is the best news a human being will ever, ever hear. The truth of Jesus' first point is occasion for great rejoicing and has a direct bearing on the eternal welfare of our souls. Now, you may disagree. From your perspective, the best news you could ever hear in life might be something else entirely. It might be tied up with winning the Lotto 649 jackpot or things related to family life or your health or marriage or fame. But you're 100% wrong. This is the best news you will ever, ever hear in life. All sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance, and God will forgive them. Sinners like Angela, who once was lost, but now is found. Who once was spiritually dead, but who is now alive in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's set the scene. This parable begins with a young Jewish man requesting his portion of the family inheritance before his father dies. And in an inconceivable demonstration of patience and love, his father grants the request. In this culture, both those actions are unheard of. What the son is requesting here is culturally unconscionable. It's appalling behavior. It's the equivalent of wishing his father were dead. Nick, what would it mean, what would it say to the world about what you think of your father's family if you legally change your last name from Copeland to Humperdinck? Unless you're in the Witness Protection Program, that sends a very clear message. Uh, Mary Jo, what would it mean, what would it say to the world if you took Analia out of your will? What does it mean if a wife takes off her wedding ring and throws it in her husband's face? All those actions speak to severing relationships, don't they? And by making this request for an early inheritance, what this young man is doing is he is severing his relationship with his father. He is removing himself from his family. He is renouncing his sonship. You are no longer my father. I am no longer your son. And in this culture, after honor to God, there is no greater duty than honor to one's parents. This young man is dishonoring his father, and he is bringing shame upon his family. Now, familial shame can be a tricky concept for some of us to understand. Uh, If you're Korean or you're from the Middle East, you've got it down pat. Uh, Canadians, not so much. But in the West today, we usually think of shame in individual terms, don't we? 
Uh, By embezzling at the office to fund my cocaine addiction, I brought shame upon myself, me, myself, and I. But in the context of our story, shame is always communal. Your personal shame is imputed to your family or your community. Jill and I just finished watching a Pride and Prejudice, and one of the daughters goes off and elopes with this guy, and she's not married, and it's like it just the whole family just is an uproar now, but the other daughters can't get married because she's brought shame upon the whole family. You know, we don't live in that culture anymore. And the first century Jewish audience, when they heard of this young man asking for an early inheritance, they would have been aghast. I mean, we could do this now. There's, you know, hey, mom, dad, you know, could you give me an early inheritance to get a down payment on a condo or something? That, that's conceivable. It's inconceivable here, all right? The, the audience would have been aghast. But they hear, oh, before your father's dead, you're asking for your inheritance. And again, that a first century Jewish father would grant such a request is an almost inconceivable expression of patience and love. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So the son departs, he turns his early inheritance into cash, and he goes to live among the Gentiles of a distant land, a people who do not know or fear the God of Israel. And we need to look at this uh, through the perspective of the audience to whom Jesus relates the parable. We need to fuse our cultural horizons. This young man first dishonors his father, brings shame on his family, and then he leaves the land of Israel, the land God promised to the patriarch Abraham to live in a land where God's presence does not reside. Because at this point in salvation history, God locally dwells in the Jerusalem temple in the Holy of Holies. He's now living in a land removed from the temple system of sacrifice for sin. And in a foreign land, he takes to wallowing in wickedness. He's hiring prostitutes now with his early inheritance. And then verse 14, after he spent all his money in wild living, a famine strikes the land. He needs to eat. So he hires himself out to a pig farmer, a job that no right-thinking, God-fearing Jew would ever consider taking. According to the law of Moses, pigs are ceremonially unclean animals. If this were a modern-day parable, the equivalent for us would not be, it would not be, there was an economic downturn in the land, and so he became a septic tank repairman or a sewage diver. No, our equivalent would be, he became a pimp. He sold fentanyl. There's a moral dimension to this. But even though he's scraping the bottom of the barrel, this lowly occupation is still unable to meet his needs and he suffers from hunger. In fact, the pigs are better off than he is. Verse 16, he longed, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. David, can you imagine that, man? Have you ever been that hungry, David? You you actually envy a pig, they're slops? Oh, you gotta be pretty low down to do that. So this young man, he wants the food of unclean animals. He cannot have it. Today, we'd say he's living in the gutter. Worse, there's no one in the land to offer him food or comfort. He's all alone. Suddenly, He comes to himself. 
he regains his senses. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. So he begins to develop a plan of action. He will act quickly and he will act humbly. That's the key here. Humility. He knows he's forfeited all rights to sonship and inheritance, but it's better to cast himself on his father's mercy than to starve to death in a pig pen. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This young man is going to place himself at his father's discretion. He will assert no rights. He recognizes he has no claims. His only hope is that his father will make him a day laborer, the lowest of the three categories of laborer in this culture. And that's fine. He's prepared to be the lowest of the low. And notice, there are no excuses here, only a confession of wrong and a humble request. So the young man repents, and he sets off for home. And the first point of our Lord's parable is this. Even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. Friend, are you here today mired in sin? Are you living in a pig pen? Are you starving to death? Spiritually speaking, even if you don't look like you're living in the gutter, even if you look quite respectable, clean and proper, what's on the inside? What's happening in your heart? Is it a pig pen of rebellion and shame and spiritual starvation and separation from God? Are you living in self-imposed exile away from your creator? Friend, Jesus has good, good news. It's right here. It's in the first point of the parable. No pit of sin is so deep that God's loving forgiveness isn't deeper still. The door to God's forgiveness is always open. There's no need to be starving to death in your pig pen of sin one second longer. Don't allow your arrogance and your pride and your self-righteousness to stand between you and the forgiveness of your sin and reconciliation with your Heavenly Father. Just like the prodigal son, there can be no excuses, only a confession of wrong and a humble request. Even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. So the son starts off for home, 
And the best he's hoping for is that his father will make him a bootlicker. But at least he'll be a bootlicker with a full belly. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. And this is the twist in the story. At this point, we would have heard a collective gasp from Jesus' first century audience. The father is defying every social convention. Here we have the slighted, sinned against father, the father whose son treated him like garbage and brought shame to the family. Here we have the patriarch of the family by his culture standards, uh, making a fool of himself, having no pride, running towards his son. That means he has to bunch up his skirts and his hands. That's very undignified for an older Jewish man to look like that. And then he he throws his arms around the whoremongering wastrel and kisses him. (laughs) This is a Beautiful, beautiful picture, beloved, because the father in this story represents God. And the son represents every sinner who humbles themselves before the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you see? There's hope. There's divine love. There's full, free forgiveness. God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin, if they're willing to accept it. Friend, perhaps the devil has fooled you into thinking that you are too sinful, you behave too wickedly, that you are beyond the pale of God's love and forgiveness. That's not true. That's not so. Jesus spoke this parable to give you joy and hope and comfort, no matter what terrible things you've done in this life. Just look at the response of the father in this story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's a picture of the sinned against, rebelled against, deliberately defied God receiving the humble sinner into his family. So, If you're sitting there with the guilt of your sin weighing you down, don't allow Satan to torment you another second through any sort of fear of divine rejection. God's word is clear. Your sin won't in any way inhibit God's joy in forgiving you and fully receiving you into his family. God's joy will not be inhibited by that. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That 
is how the God of the Bible responds to humble repentance. So be emboldened, friend, and cast yourself upon the Heavenly Father's love and mercy. And when God takes us back into his family, it's not as his eternal bootlickers. If we were God's eternal bootlickers, that would only speak to infinite mountains of grace and mercy. We don't deserve to be God's bootlickers. We don't deserve sin forgiven. We don't deserve the record of our treasonous anarchy wiped clean. We forfeited that right. That's actually the state of things. We deserve hell. Not the death of the eternal son in our place. Calvary is not a sinner's rightful privilege. Eternal life is not our rightful inheritance. You must believe this. But Jesus tells us that when we humbly repent and turn to God, we're restored to the full privilege of sonship. Do you notice the father in the story does a very surprising thing. He receives his son back with full restoration of privileges. It's as if nothing happened. All the shame this young man brought upon himself and his family, it's all been wiped away. It's all been forgiven. The prodigal son has returned into the full favor of his father. He's gone from utter destitution to full restoration. He's a member of the family once again. And the father explains the reason for the celebration in verse 24. His son has been resurrected. This son of his was dead, but now he's alive. The father never expected to see his son again. He was lost. Now he's found. What Jesus is saying is this. This is our second point. Even as the father in this parable went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to his lost son, so also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin, if they're willing to accept it. And as sinful human beings who have forfeited the privilege of being in God's family, we need to be placing ourselves in this story, friends. We are the character of the lost son. Every human being who has ever lived must identify themselves with this character. We're all just as bad as he is. We're all in the same predicament. If you're sitting there and saying, no, it's not the same, you're sorely, sorely mistaken. God's word is against you. That's not true. We're all just like this son. And as we read this parable, and as God's spirit moves in our hearts, by God's grace, we'll experience the same wonderful shock and incredulity as the first century audience when they heard Jesus speak of the father running down the road toward his prodigal son. We'll think, what? Even though I treated God so shamefully by defying him in my sin, 
by de-godding him and living for myself and defying his holy commandments, and for many years despising the good news of his sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son, yet God will run down the road to meet me and throw his arms around my neck and kiss me and fully restore me back into the family, me? You won't find passages like this in the Quran. You won't find, you won't read parables of Allah running like an undignified person down the road, throwing himself with kisses at sinners who have defied him and wallowed in the mire of sin and immorality. That's because the God of the Bible is the God of lavish love. God says to his people, just as he said to our sister Angela, I have set my affection on you from before the foundation of the world. Not because you are wiser or better or more lovable than anybody else, but because in my grace, I chose you. You are mine, and nothing in all creation can separate you from my love as it's mediated through my son, Jesus. Now, bear in mind, this parable takes place at a certain point in history. Jesus hasn't yet died on the cross for the sins of his people, so he really can't be explicitly teaching about his crucifixion and resurrection to this crowd. Uh, They wouldn't understand what he's talking about. What Jesus is emphasizing in this parable is the connection, the connection between humble repentance and God's lavish forgiveness. But this side of the cross and resurrection, which is the climax of Luke's gospel, and in the light of the rest of the New Testament revelation, we know, we know that we won't be received into full family privileges and the slate wiped clean apart from humble repentance as we come to Jesus Christ in faith. Everything hinges on the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And that's the climax of this gospel. Everything Jesus says and does in the gospel of Luke has to be interpreted in actually how the book ends. The climax of everything, which is the cross and resurrection. And Jesus' atoning work on the cross stands across the centuries, calling sinners to repentance, granting forgiveness, granting adoptive rights to prodigal children who forfeited their rights to God's family long ago. Friend, do you hear the offer Jesus makes to you today? Full forgiveness of sin. Full restoration of family privilege. A free gift given by God to all who humble themselves before the cross of Jesus. I know Angela has invited some of her friends to witness her baptism this afternoon. We're delighted to have you with us today. Uh, But let me explain something. Angela wants to be sure you understand this, and it's related directly to this parable. Angela knows that she's a sinner. God says so in the Bible, and she's well acquainted with her own sin, her rebellion against God. She knows that in her heart, in its natural state, her heart is a pig pen. It was from birth. 
I'm not putting words in her mouth. Ask her and she'll tell you that herself. She'll be saying much the same thing at her baptism this afternoon. And, and Angela truly believes that she has no rightful claim to God's forgiveness. She believes, she understands. No one is deserving of God's mercy, including herself. No one is good enough or could work hard enough to earn God's favor. And yet, there she sits, happy and filled with joy and thankfulness and gratitude. This is a day for celebration because her sins, which are many, have been forgiven by God. And she's invited some of you to this special occasion, her baptism, because she wants you to know how her sins have been forgiven by the same God she sinned against. And she wants to hold out that same hope to you. And she wants you to witness this great work of God's forgiveness, symbolized in her baptism and in joining the church. Even as the Father in this parable, went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to his lost son. So also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin if they are willing to accept it. Which takes us to our concluding point, number three. Even as the older brother should not have begrudged his brother's reinstatement, but rather rejoiced in it, So those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that God extends his grace even to the most undeserving. Now the attention turns to the elder brother's response to both the prodigal's return and his father's unqualified acceptance of him. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Sibling rivalry can be a a very ugly thing. It can be very stupid as well. Uh, My mother is allergic to cats and dogs. So when I was a kid, my two brothers and I had to make do with goldfish for pets uh, each brother had his own goldfish. And, uh, and there were times as a child, I was the eldest brother, there were times when I was a child when I felt that one of my younger siblings had wronged me and my pleas for justice had fallen on deaf ears. The little stinker had gotten away with it. But if I retaliated directly by beating him up, then I'd be the one who was punished. The injustice of it all. So instead of venting my anger out on my brother... Without anyone knowing, I would take my brother's goldfish out of the tank and hold it in the air for about 10 seconds. <laughs> That's the kind of demented kid I was. Now, now, maybe that illustration would be more appropriate where I'm talking about penal substitution, but I'm using it today for sibling rivalry. The oldest son has been laboring away in the father's field diligently and faithfully for years. When he arrives home, the celebration is already underway. So he calls over one of the servants. What's going on? The servant responds that the younger brother has returned home in good health and the father has taken him back with joy. He's killed the fattened calf and now he's throwing a party. The older brother is not pleased. He is angered by this news. This isn't right. 
the injustice of it all. To his thinking, two things are very wrong with this picture. First, the youngest brother had forever forfeited any claim to the family. That was just a cultural given. The shame he had brought down on the family was unforgivable. How dare he return? And secondly, it's wrong of his father to throw a party for this scumbag. Both his younger brother and his father are in the wrong. And the older brother is so disgusted that he can't even bring himself to go inside the house. So the patriarch of the family, he has to leave the party and come out to meet the eldest son and plead with him. But the older brother is very angry. He's totally unmoved by his brother's safe return. And he impugns his father's justice and his father's fairness. Verse 29. Look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, very deliberately, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice how he is focusing on himself in opposition to his brother. The the son who was obedient, even to the point of working like a slave, has no reward or celebration. While the son who wandered away and squandered his inheritance on prostitutes is given a huge party. That the father should show grace to his youngest son infuriates the older brother. That the father should show unmerited favor, because that's what grace is should show grace to his youngest son. It infuriates the older brother. Do you see how perverse this is? The gracious father, the father who ran down the road with his skirts in his hand while his son was still a long way off before covering him with kisses. That beautiful, beautiful picture. He's now made to look unfaithful, unfair, ungenerous. Just take Point number two in your bulletins, New City, and wipe that truth from the Bible. That's what the older brother would like. But listen to the father's tender reply. It's just as tender as his son's words are harsh. Verse 31. My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. He's always had access to the celebration. All the father owns belongs to him. The prodigal brother's reinstatement into the family in no way diminishes the elder brother's status. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, notice the language again, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost (coughs) and is found. It was necessary for the household to celebrate a dead son, a dead brother, is now alive. That which was lost is now found. These are events that should result in joy, great joy, not questions about fairness and justice. What Jesus is telling us in this part of the parable is that even as the older brother 
should not have begrudged his brother's reinstatement, but rather rejoiced in it. So those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that God extends his grace to even the most undeserving sinners. What's prompted Jesus to tell this parable? Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 15. This is why studying context is so important. Go to chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What's prompted these parables? Verses 1 and 2 tell us it was the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were a self righteous bunch who looked down on the tax collectors and sinners. These people were to be despised. They weren't the kind of folks you ate with. And what's the application of these two parables? It's this. There is heavenly joy over the lost person who repents, no matter how wicked they are. And then we have the parable of the prodigal son directly following it. Friend, God will go to great effort and rejoice with great joy to find and restore a sinner to himself. The Bible says so. Jesus says so. God is not the God of the few, the God of the wise, the God of only those who think they pursue God, like these Pharisees. He is the God who searches finds and cares for unlovable sinners like you and me. Sinners like Angela Norlander. And so Christians must not be a judgmental people. We ourselves have been forgiven an infinite debt we could never hope to repay. And there does not exist a category of sin or a class of sinner whose sins are so extreme, so terrible, 
that the substitutionary, sacrificial, wrath-absorbing death of Jesus Christ will not atone. Jesus' blood goes deeper than the stain has gone. And this truth needs to impact a hundred different parts of our life, but one thing it needs to impact is our evangelism. We need to be more bold, less judgmental, and more indiscriminate with whom we share the gospel. This truth needs to impact we pray for, that God might grant salvation even to our enemies, those who have treated us shamefully. And as we have been graciously forgiven, so must we graciously forgive. And we must rejoice in the repentance God grants even to the worst of sinners. Even to sinners who have wronged or hurt us, who perhaps have sinned against us in disgusting ways. We must not be nurturing bitterness and hate. That would be a denial of the grace of the gospel. That would make salvation based upon something other than God's love in Jesus Christ. This text calls us to account, New City. We must not be like the older brother who resents it when God grants full family rights to those who have humbly repented. We are all utterly undeserving. Even as the older brother should not have begrudged his brother's reinstatement, but rather rejoiced in it, so those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that God extends his grace even to the most undeserving sinners. Even as the father in this parable went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to his lost son, so also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin if they are willing to accept it. Even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in sincere and complete repentance. Amen.